You're listening to Friendlier, the podcast for friends who love to talk, read, and eat. I'm Abby. And I'm Sarah. Today we're going to talk about how we talk to our kids about tough stuff. But first, let's catch up on life lately. What's new with you, Abby? We adopted two kittens a week ago. Yay! After Sita died, we were not sure if we were going to get more cats right away. And it turns out I like cats, so <laughs> so you did. I saw these kittens at a rescue in Huntsville, which is about an hour and a half from us. And they sounded like they would be a really good fit. And so I sent them to Andrew and sent an email inquiring about them. And everything moved really fast. Andrew agreed to it within a matter of G-chats. And people <laughs> got right back to me. And then the kids and I drove up and got them that very day. <laughs> so it was a, a win for instant gratification and a win for pandemic pets. I love it. Their names are Raven and Ezra. And they are now pretty much fully integrated with Duncan, who is our older cat that we still had. It's very pleasant. They're very soft and sweet. And they are bringing me a lot of joy. Are the kids loving having new kittens as well? Yes. Plum is very good with them. She's good at playing with them. She's good at petting them softly. Pepper really gets excited when he sees them and stomps and yells, mm -hmm. which is not so good. But yeah. I'm thankful that the kittens are good at taking care of themselves and that there don't seem to be lasting effects on them from the stomping and screaming. They still come around him. They just leave when he does that, <laughs> which is fine. Seems totally reasonable. Yes. Very fair. What's new with you, Sarah? We have been on a mission to find the perfect sled. We had some hand-me-down sleds from when we were at our rental our landlords lived right across the street, and their child was much older. Mm. And so as we were moving to our current home, they asked if we wanted these sleds that they had in their garage. And those had worked great for years. But as happens in our house slash property, things got left out, so they weren't getting put away in the shed. Mm. They were turned upside down and someone walked on them. They had cracks <laughs> because they're the hard plastic kind. Mm. Wasn't turning out great. Last year, we didn't have snow, so not a big deal. But this year, we've had, I think, three good snows. And other kids that we go sledding with at the neighborhood park have much better sleds that are fast, that are not broken, <laughs> that are lightweight. So we, just after this last snow, made a purchase of these thin foam-like sleds that just fit one person. But the thing I'm loving most about them is that they're really lightweight. So the kids will be able to carry them on their own mm. without a lot of whining, which seems really good. And when you go back up the hill, you want something that's light to carry back to go down again. Yeah, that seems sort of a key piece, the non-whining. Mm -hmm. Yes, for everyone's enjoyment. So we have used these sleds that a neighbor had, and then we have two coming our way in just a couple days. So fingers crossed, it snows again, mm. so our kids will get a chance to get a full, good experience of sledding without having to wait for someone else to offer them a turn on a sled that isn't broken. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move into what we've been reading. Abby, what is your latest book? I recently finished the Charm of Magpies series, which is a trilogy by K.J. Charles that has three 
main novels and then three novellas that come immediately after each of the main novels. Mm -hmm. And I bought these on Kindle with credits that I had and the novellas were included. So I ended up reading one, one and a half, two, two and a half, three, three and a half, sort of right in a row like that. Mm -hmm. This is male, male historical fantasy romance. There are magic practitioners, evil warlocks, lots of amazing clothes, and lots of explicit sex scenes. I loved just about everything about it. The first book did take me a little while to get into, but after that, I was off to the races, and I plan to read the trilogy that comes after this one that's set in the same world. Mm. A few of the characters from that one overlap, and I just want more, so I'm going to go for it. I think that happens often with the fantasy world building, where Mm -hmm. there's so much to absorb to get into, and that's why it's so great when there are more than one book, so that you can really enjoy the experience of being in the world once you've done that work. Totally. I think it's probably good for the authors, too. You know, they have done all that work to build the world and make it consistent Mm -hmm. and interesting, and so it's nice for them to just keep that rolling. (laughs) Agreed. I would recommend these. I will give a warning that they are pretty violent Mm. in certain parts, so it can be a little overwhelming. The fantasy violence does not bother me in the way that horror-type violence would, but it's just something to be aware of. But like I said, I will be continuing to read these, and I encourage everyone who they sound good to to do that as well. Great. What have you been reading, friend? I listened to Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo. This is a YA novel in verse. Mm. The premise is that right at the start, a father dies in a plane crash on his way to the Dominican Republic to visit his daughter. The book alternates between two perspectives. There's Camino, who is his daughter that lives in the Dominican Republic, and Yahaira, who is his daughter that lives in New York City. They don't know about each other. Mm. And the novel follows their discovery of one another, Mm. the exposure of their father's secrets, and how each of them deal with the loss of their father. So fascinating. It was a really beautiful listen. It's read by the author, and because it's in verse, you really get to hear how she intended it to be read Mm. with her cadence and her emphasis. So while I think I would have enjoyed it in hard copy, I think listening to it really elevated it to the next level. Love that. I also enjoyed the exploration of loss and questions about how well do we ever know people, even the people who are closest to us. And that didn't just have to do with their father, but also what everybody knew when and how they dealt with the unfolding tragedy. Hmm. I would recommend this. A great listen, interesting themes. And she also wrote The Poet X, which I read immediately after this one and is another YA novel in verse, and I would highly recommend that one as well. Nice. Our topic for today is about talking to our kids about tough stuff. When we solicited questions from listeners for our 100th episode, we got an email from a listener that sent in a few questions that we felt fell into this topic and that we wanted to devote a whole episode to it. So thank you once again for sending in those ideas. Let's start by sharing if you have a guiding philosophy when it comes to talking to your kids about sensitive or difficult topics. I would say our philosophy is centered around telling the truth Mm -hmm. and then 
also limiting answers or information to the things that they really need to know. And then if they have questions about a specific thing, letting them ask more. This reminds me a lot of the work I do in science communication trainings. Mm -hmm. I think there is a tendency for humans in general to just kind of word vomit and say everything you know about something, (laughs) whether you're Uh answering a science question in a talk you're giving or Mm -hmm. your kid is asking about sex. They might have a very different question than what you think they have. And Mm -hmm. it's good if you are answering the question that they are asking. Yes. And it's really hard to do because there's the one where you say way too much and keep going (laughs) well beyond what they're interested in knowing. But then there's the other side of wanting to avoid talking about something and trying to circumvent what they're asking. And I feel like our society vacillates between the two of those Yes, often. And finding that middle path is really a challenge. Totally. Like you, we try to answer questions directly. I think a lot about how I want them to feel comfortable coming back to me with more questions. And so if they're not getting honest and direct answers from me, I worry that they will not see me as a resource that is valuable and reliable. Yes. The other part that you've already touched on is following their lead about how much information they want or need, which, like all of this, is easier said than done. (laughs) There are many different ways to think about this question. I thought we'd start with talking about how we handle discussing politics and current events, since that has been such a big part of this last year, with it being an election year here in the United States. Why don't you share how you handle discussing politics and current events with your kids, and also how that was handled in your family of origin? In my family growing up, I distinctly remember my parents talking about values when it came to politics. Mm. I heard a lot about, we believe that people should take care of each other, and that's why we vote this way. Mm -hmm. And so it was always couched from the perspective of policies and issues, which I think is really valuable, and that's how I try to do it with my kids. We focus on policies and laws rather than the personality of politicians, Mm -hmm. although sometimes that can't be avoided. And then in terms of the exposure to things like news, growing up, we were never a family that had TV news on all the time, but my parents did listen to a lot of NPR, so I think I asked most some that way. Our kids are still really little. They are five and almost two, or at least will be when this episode comes out. And so Andrew and I talk about things in front of them, but other than what Plum hears at school, our kids don't get that much exposure to news outside of us because we're not a family that has those kind of news media things going all the time. Mm -hmm. One of the things I remember most about growing up is asking my parents who they voted for in a presidential election and them telling me that our country has a secret ballot. And so that they wouldn't tell me how they voted, which is just fascinating to me thinking about that now. Yeah. We did always talk about issues. So it wasn't as though politics was a conversation that was shut down across the board. But what I remember is anytime I would have an opinion, and like I do now, I had lots of strong opinions (laughs) when I was growing up. (laughs) And whenever I came forward with an opinion, my parents wouldn't say whether they agreed with me or didn't agree with me. They would argue the other point of view mm. and make me think about the other side, which I think was great. It did force me to consider how people honestly come to different points of view and how there are so many different sides and things to consider 
when it comes to political issues. Mm -hmm. Like your family, we did not watch news on TV. My family got the local paper and read that daily. And sometimes NPR, but I remember most of the time when we were in the car, because that's when NPR would be on, we would ask for it to be switched to the local pop station instead. (laughs) So I think there was probably NPR listening when we were not in the car, but not as much when we were present. And I also remember seeing Newsweek magazine, looking through the pictures of that and asking questions about what I was seeing there. Hmm. At our home now, we also get the local paper and Time magazine. And HP will look at pictures and read the captions and ask us about what's going on. So that has been a source of conversation there. I meet my need for political commentary by listening to Pod Save America, but I usually try and listen without the kids around due to both the salty language and the biased point of view, Mm -hmm. which I am fine consuming as an adult, but I would prefer that they hear things in a more neutral way and are able to come to their own conclusions versus having an opinion handed to them. Hmm. Now that there are ages six and eight and both in elementary school, they are definitely hearing about things from their peers and coming home and asking questions. And sometimes when things happen, I'll make a point to sit down and talk to them. For example, on January 6th, when the Capitol was stormed, I knew that that would be a discussion in school the next day. And I wanted to have a conversation with them about it before they went to school. Mm-hmm as opposed to having the class conversation be their first exposure. We also try and emphasize values the way that you shared. When we would talk about Trump, we would discuss how we don't share the same values and then give examples Mm -hmm. rather than talking about him as an individual. We say a lot of things like, this is important to us, so we support this policy or this candidate. Yeah. Our next topic is going to be about gender and race stereotypes and how we talk about those with our kids. And it felt like that was really looped in with the political conversation this last year, specifically around the Democratic primary, that we talked to our kids a lot about who was running, how we've never had a woman for president, how there's only been one person of color that has been president, and why that is, and what we hope for the future. Mm -hmm. So that leads us right into our next question, which is, how do you talk to your kids about race and gender? We talk a lot about race with our kids. At the ages they're at now, it's mostly been about naming race and talking about Mm -hmm. racism and how that affects people, including us. Not that we experience racism, but that white people are the ones perpetrating racism. Mm -hmm. So we want to make them aware that they have a role in it. And then with that, a role in fighting it both in the world and within ourselves. Yes. And we have been reading lots of books, both ones that specifically address race and racism and others that have characters that don't look like us. I was really inspired when Plum was young to find books that did not feature all white people and all male characters. Mm -hmm. And there is just so much great stuff out there that's really lovely and fun to discover that that Desire has been a really nice thing about choosing media for the kids. Agreed. Books are also our go-to for conversations around race. Finding books that talk about the past in an honest way and also acknowledge how far we have to go. I think there's a lot of the civil rights movement was great and we fixed everything (sighs) in this desire to make the past more palatable for children. Mm -hmm. But as you said, there's a lot of great books that are not doing that. 
I loved how you specifically mentioned how racism affects you and your kids, because that's something we try and do as well. Being white is not neutral. Yes. And I want them to see the way that their whiteness affects the way they are perceived and the opportunities they have, and that that is not just, and that as white people, we have a responsibility to make the world a more just place and to see themselves as anti-racist working for justice. Mm -hmm. This has been an area where I feel like I have a lot to learn and have fumble conversations in the past. Same. And when that happens, I try and address it either immediately if I feel ready to do that or bringing it back up the next day and circling back around and just acknowledging that this is really hard and I am learning too and I might not always have the right thing to say, but that it's better to keep the conversation going than to strive for perfection. Definitely. We also purposefully bring them into conversations about what's happening in the world today, specifically around shootings of unarmed Black men and the protests that happened this last summer mm -hmm. around racial justice to make sure that we're keeping it grounded in the history, but also how that is affecting the reality of people's lives today. Yeah. In terms of gender, we have talked some about how colors are for everyone and clothes are for everyone. We also have a really great book called It Feels Good to Be Yourself by Teresa Thorne that's about gender identity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that we've read a lot with them. There was a period of time where she asked for it every day. And so we've read that a lot. And we'll read that with Pepper when he's old enough. In terms of how we raise them, I try to be aware of how I'm putting gendered expectations on them, but this is definitely something that I mess up and will continue to adjust as they grow up. Yeah. Like you, we also talk about colors, clothes, activities that people choose. Mm -hmm. And I think when they were younger, it was much more of, of course, there's no boy and girl colors. Every color is for everyone and emphasizing yeah. that. But we've also had to have a lot of conversations as they're just observing the world, that pink is not a girl's color, but our society associates it with girls. Yes. And this acknowledgement of the stereotypes that are in the culture in order to combat them, as opposed to just saying that it's not true, mm -hmm. that there's some kind of balance to be found there. Definitely. Neil and I have had a lot of discussions about gender and how we're raising our kids, and whether our own biases and upbringings and swimming in the sea that is our culture <laughs> has affected how we're parenting them. And there are several ways that our kids fall into typical gender roles, and wondering if we have subtly and unconsciously encouraged that in ways that we would never intentionally do, but something that we've been thinking a lot about as they grow up. I think their classes have done a great job talking about gender stereotypes and gender fluidity. I have loved that piece of their formal education and how kids in their class are very adamant about gendered language and pointing it out when they hear it. If I read a book that talks about man or men referring to a person or people, they will immediately correct me. Like if something says man-made, they'll say person-made <laughs> you know, as soon as we're going through. Love that. Which I think is fun for them to point out and see and also makes me realize how gendered everything is. Seriously. 
A book that we have loved is Who Are You? A Kid's Guide to Gender Identity by Book Preston Wedby, which does a great job of explaining the difference between biological sex, gender identity, and gender expression. And we've talked a lot about how in order to know someone's gender, you have to ask and you shouldn't assume. And also how gender is not binary, even though society wants us to pigeonhole people. Nice. Another thing that I've been thinking about is how when they were younger, I'm thinking preschool age, they seemed much more gender fluid in their preferences. Mm. And as they have entered school age, it feels like some of those societal expectations have solidified in their own minds. So we're still continuing those conversations and figuring it out as we go. Another topic that can feel challenging to talk about with kids is sex and our bodies. How have you handled that so far? Once again, we have relied on books a lot. There are so many good ones that are body positive, sex positive, Mm -hmm. some that are all of those things while also not putting too much of an emphasis on gender, which I really love. Mm -hmm. And in our household, we try to be sex and body positive, which means following these same kind of principles, telling them the truth if they ask direct questions, not dissembling about our sex life or about what they might hear in the world. For the younger ages of my children, there have been a few books that stand out as highlights. One is Amazing You by Gail Saltz. Mm -hmm. That's just a body's book, but, you know, talks about the real names of body parts and is anatomically correct. It does put more of a emphasis on the difference between boys and girls, Mm -hmm. which is not my favorite, but it is what it is. And then What Makes a Baby by Corey Silverberg, which is absolutely delightful and leaves gender almost completely out of baby making, which is very cool. So lots of discussion of sperm and egg, almost nothing about moms and dads, Mm -hmm. which I really love. And then Something that's been a hit lately is It's Not the Stork by Roby Harris. And that one is kind of a step up from both of those other ones in terms of maturity. And it's about both bodies, but then there's also a part about making babies and sex. And it is the first in a series of three that's earmarked for different ages. And I think we will get those as they grow up. Mm -hmm. I also read this really great article recently by somebody who had older kids, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And she was talking about the difficulty of having time for sex and intimacy with her husband during the pandemic when her high school children Mm. were always home. Yes. What they eventually settled on was telling their kids, when I turn on the fan in the hall and shut the door, dad and I are having sex, please don't come in. And how that worked in their family. And I just really appreciated that perspective. And it made me think a lot about what we'll tell our kids as they get older. Mm -hmm. And I am leaning toward that sort of full openness. These are the basics you need to know about what's happening. And I think we'll all be better for it. Yeah. Hearing that is making me think about teaching kids about privacy and the need for privacy, but then also being open about the things you need privacy for and Hmm. how to gracefully execute that combination. Mm -hmm. The books I'm going to share are more geared towards parents in this topic. Mm. I have loved the book Diapers to Dating by Deborah Hafner, which talks Hmm. about what to talk about with kids related to sex and their body that's developmentally and age-appropriate in different ages. 
Cool. It's one that I'd like to come back to. I read it when our kids were really little and think that I would get different things from it now than I did then. I'm sure. I have also loved Girls in Sex and Boys in Sex, both by Peggy Ornstein, which shares the perspective of teenagers and young adults about their own experiences with sex and their interactions with their parents around the topic of sex. Mm. And a lot of it was about how much kids want their parents to be having those conversations with them, even though they're awkward and they may act like they don't want to, but they're really needing that resource that's not their peers. Yeah. In terms of what Neil and I have done so far is not using euphemisms to refer to body parts, as you mentioned, answering all questions when asked, and answering directly and honestly rather than trying to avoid or obfuscate Mm -hmm. what they're seeking. And we've also done a lot of reading of books together. Many of the ones you've mentioned have also been big players in our house. I'm also really thankful that our church has a great program called Our Whole Lives that has three stages to the program where we are. With first and second graders, they talk about bodies. With fourth and fifth graders, the focus is on puberty. And with seventh and eighth graders, the focus is on sex. And it's such a great resource for having other adults that aren't your parents Mm -hmm. available to answer your questions and have conversations. And I think the more trusted adults that can be part of guiding our kids in sexuality, the better. Definitely. And I am someone who graduated from that program in my church growing up. And I think it informed a lot of the ways that I both think about sex and have talked about it with my kids and within our family. The last topic we'll touch on today is more personal about the things that are happening within our families that are tough and how we're discussing those. How have those conversations gone in your house? When we are approaching conversations like this, we've basically followed the same principles. Tell them the truth, don't overshare, and rely on values. This came up most recently when we chose euthanasia for our elderly cat, but also we chose euthanasia for our dog mm-hmm. almost three years ago now. So Plum was two when our dog Tonks died. What we told her at that point was that Tonks's body stopped working, which was true, but not too much extra. She understood much more about our cat Zeta. Mm-hmm. What I told her was, I'm going to take Zeta to the vet who will help her die because she's in a lot of pain and her body isn't working well anymore. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of feelings around that conversation, but I think our sort of general parenting principle around feelings is acknowledge, validate when appropriate, and let them feel the feelings really worked well in that case. Mm Mm-hmm. I have also been really open with Plum about my mental health. She knows that I take medication and go on walks so that I can do a better job being a person and a parent. We've talked about how hard it was when my brain was sick after Pepper was born, Mm -hmm. that it was hard because I wasn't my best self and it made it hard for her too. Yeah. So those kind of conversations are ongoing. But because we have sort of always talked about hard things. It feels like we have a good basis for this type of conversation and that it goes kind of as well as it can. And creates this ability to empathize with other people that are going through tough things too, Mm. where if we're not having these open conversations with our kids and they're not seeing us 
feeling sad or frustrated or angry or any number of things that come. I think it's limiting their ability to connect with other people when they're also going through something hard. Yeah. The two areas that I think about most has been the death of family members. Most recently, my aunt passed away last winter, and the kids and I visited her in the hospital when she was sick. And they had questions about why she was dying and what was happening. And as you said, being honest and then acknowledging the sadness, both our own and theirs, and continuing to talk about her and the memories we have of our time with her. And this is something one of my children in particular has wanted to continue that conversation. Mm. So trying to follow their lead when they are wanting to process more with someone. The other part that comes to mind is related to my cancer diagnosis. At the time, our kids were four and six. When we first found out, we were still absorbing that information and trying to figure out what was going to be happening. There were so many unknowns and so much uncertainty about what the next steps were. At first, we thought, we'll wait till we have more information that we can share, but it quickly became obvious that there wouldn't be a lot of information for a while and that mm. we would just have to be in the unknown. And we wanted to tell them, both because I'm sure they noticed the shift in the mood in the family yeah, and because we didn't want them overhearing something from somebody else. And we wanted to be telling our broader support system what was happening so we could be supported. So when we told them, we said that I had breast cancer, which meant that there was something growing in my breast that shouldn't be there and that I would have to have surgery to take it out. We told them we wouldn't know until after the surgery if there would be more treatment, but that we would let them know when we knew more. I think it was easier for our kids at that point because this was their first real experience with cancer. Hmm. So it didn't immediately conjure up fear and death the way that it does for adults. Yeah. At the ages that they were, they seemed to take it in stride, and we tried not to put the fear and anxiety that we were feeling onto them and let them continue to live their lives while keeping them informed of what was happening. They asked to see my scars when I got home, were very interested in the drainage tubes, and it's something that we still reflect back on sometimes about remembering different aspects of the surgery. But overall, that approach of being honest and direct seemed to work. Yeah. Let's wrap up by sharing any resources that you haven't already mentioned about how to handle these kinds of conversations. I already mentioned the books, but there are a couple of Instagram accounts that are kind of general parenting, but I think also have things that come up occasionally about what to tell kids, mm -hmm. especially when something on a national scale happens that kids might be hearing about, sort of how to talk to them about it. The first one is Dr. Becky at Home. And then there's also a, an account called Seed and Sew, like sewing a button. And both of those are on Instagram. And then I've mentioned this before, but the Visible Child Facebook group mm -hmm. is a great resource for all things respectful parenting. But occasionally talking to kids about tough stuff does come up in there. The resource I've most relied on are ones related to respectful parenting. The Janet Lansbury and the Rye Philosophy 
which seems uh, similar to the Visible Child Facebook group. Yes, the woman who runs it is also a Rye associate or Mm -hmm. connected to that world in some way. And to me, it's about assuming that my kids can handle the truth and trusting them in the process. And that's something that I try and like guide me as we go through these conversations. I've also used the Conscious Kid website Mm. that has a lot of great resources for books and also just articles about how to talk to your kids about race and searching out own voices, Mm -hmm. which is a movement within children's literature for people writing about their own experiences rather than white authors writing about the experience of marginalized people. That wraps up our conversation around talking to our kids about tough stuff. We would love to hear how these kind of conversations have gone for you and your families, and if you have other resources that you would recommend for us and other listeners. Let's wrap up by sharing something we've been eating lately. I will share a Trader Joe's find. As I may have shared on the podcast before, I am not a huge Trader Joe's fan or have not been in the past, I guess I should say. We also do not have one locally. But when I go to Indianapolis for some follow-up doctor's appointments there, which is not one of the more pleasant tasks in my life, I have been treating myself by stopping at Trader Joe's and buying easy frozen food type meals and other snacky things. One of the things I've most enjoyed recently are sweet and spicy pickled jalapenos. I have been eating these plain. (laughs) and on crackers with goat cheese and then putting these on top. So delicious. I have been eating to the point where I am regretting it some the following day (laughs) in terms of the quantity of jalapenos that I have eaten, but the enjoyment that I get in the moment is well worth it. Love it. What have you been eating? I recently made lentils all with spinach sauce from the blog Feasting at Home, and this was truly delicious. It's very easy. It's just like cook some onions and garlic, add some spices, add a whole bunch of spinach and let it wilt. Then use your immersion blender to blend it up. Then add a cup of cooked lentils, serve over basmati rice with naan. And it was so good. I made it on a Sunday, I think, because I wanted to have it for leftovers for the week. Mm -hmm. And then Andrew and I had to duke it out to see who was going to get to (laughs) have it for lunch. He wanted to pack it in his lunch. I said, no, leave that here. I want to eat that. The kids also liked it, Mm. I think, because the textures were smooth enough Mm -hmm. and the flavors delicious enough that there was not too much that was undesirable to them. (laughs) So it was a hit. We will be adding it to our regular rotation. Love it. That's all for this episode of Friendlier. It's been great talking with you, Sarah, and with all of you listeners. You can find out more about everything we talked about today, including what we're reading and eating, in the show notes on our website, friendlierpodcast.com. You can also leave us a comment there or on Instagram at friendlierpodcast or email us, friendlierpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, may your books be engaging, your food delicious, and your conversations friendly. Uh, I don't know. Let me start that sentence over. I don't even remember where I started it.